0: Are listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians, where faith meets fandom. Welcome to the show for progressive followers of Jesus who also happen to love hogwarts, hobbits, and hiding on an island with cuddly bird creatures and indigenous frog nuns. (laughs) This is season four, episode one: The Fall of the Jedi and the End of Christendom. I'm Adam Thomas, and I am so very happy to be sitting across the internet from Carrie Combs. Hello, Carrie.
1: Hey Adam, you talked first. I
0: did. This is the this is the first time in our we're out, we're approaching 30 episodes where oh we're yeah we we're switching roles uh, for the intros and outros, and I was excited to um, start auditioning my radio voice as the uh, jumping into the <laughs> into the intro here
1: and i'm great glad to be starting in my official role as hype person for my friends who do cool things Yay. stay tuned for the end of the episode oh
0: yeah it's exciting <laughs> uh it's been 5 months i think since we recorded mm-hmm the last of our in-between season episodes on uh, Harry Potter's four, five and six so that we could skip to Harry Potter seven and uh, sitting here and getting ready to talk about the last Jedi. I'm just feeling very blessed to have you as a friend and a podcast partner.
1: I did. I definitely missed recording the podcast the past few months. There's been a lot going on. We're sitting here right now in late August of 2021 and there's a lot happening, Um, Mm -hmm. but it's, I think those experiences, having this to reflect on, to think about, to be planning the season, planning the episodes always gives some kind of structure to the world around me in a, in a, in a helpful way. It's a place to take the things I love and channel all of the thoughts I'm having around the world and what's going on and putting them in a hopefully helpful place to be enjoyed by others. This season on the podcast, we're introducing a new segment called Ask Us Anything, where fans of the pod can ask us questions on faith, fandom, the intersection between the two, or just about anything nerdy or Christian.
0: To ask us a question, just uh, go to Twitter at nerdy christians or at rev adam thomas or we have a facebook post on facebook.com slash nerdy christians pinned to the top of the page which is the ask us anything post so just put it right there and hopefully we will have enough questions to last the season and if we don't, uh, we'll just ask each other questions. And um, <laughs> and if we have too many questions, we'll probably add an episode at the end and and run through them all the ones we don't get to during uh, the episodes. But go ahead and ask us a question, facebook.com slash christians or at nerdychristians at Rev Adam Thomas on Twitter. And we'll have some fun in between our main topic and our book club talking a couple of minutes about your questions. All right, let's keep going. So uh, what is our scripture quote today
1: our scripture quotation for today comes from the gospel of john chapter 4 verses 23 through 24 jesus said but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for the father seeks such as these to worship him god is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth
0: And our quote from Nerd Canon comes from the legendary Mark Hamill playing Luke Skywalker in Star Wars The Last Jedi. He says, This is the lesson that the Force does not belong to the Jedi. To say that if the Jedi die, the light dies is vanity.
1: I want to point out that Jesus is also pretty legendary.
0: Hey, not well, just Mark you know, Hamill. Not just Mark Jesus <laughs> So next <too. laughs> time I
1: introduce a quote, i will be like from the legendary, the legendary man Jesus of
0: Jesus. <laughs> Today we are talking about what for for some reason became a very controversial Star Wars movie and The mm. Last Jedi. Um, when you poll people, there's not a lot of neutral feelings about The Last Jedi. There's a lot of people who absolutely love it and a lot of people who for some reason absolutely hate it. You can probably tell by the fact that I just said for some reason that I'm in the former (laughs) camp. Um, As am
1: I. (laughs) However,
0: we are not doing a review of The Last Jedi. We are going to talk about a lot of the ideas in The Last Jedi, specifically around the scenes with Rey and Luke Skywalker. And we might dip into a couple of other characters. We'll see. A lot of the Con- the sort of the controversy, if, if you want to use that word, surrounding this movie had to do with the portrayal of Luke Skywalker. So I, I felt like we needed to at least address the fact that there's a lot of fans who just hate this movie because mm-hmm. they don't like the portrayal of Luke Skywalker. And that is exactly what we're going to talk about today. Because when we, when we watched the last Jedi and, and especially Luke's portrayal, you and I both saw a lot of parallels between mm-hmm. Luke's understanding of the Jedi and where the church, capital C Church, is in the world right now.
1: The the fan reaction to the way Luke and the Jedi Order are portrayed is similar to, I'd say, people in the church's reaction to how the church is changing, evolving, adapting in the world that we are currently living in. And especially, I guess, on the fan side of Star Wars, given the buildup at the end of...
0: The Force Awakens.
1: The Force Awakens. I was like, a New Hope? Nope, that's 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 older. That's different. Um, with with Ray standing on the island, holding out the lightsaber, and then the complete one eighty in tones, sh- the tone shift that happens in the beginning of mm-hmm. the fall. Um, I need to get these all written down.
0: Hold on. Oh. Um, Carrie is now. She, she is pulling out a notebook and writing Writing down the names of the Star Wars movies. (laughs)
1: What are they?
0: (laughs) Uh, Do you want all of them or just the three three sequels? sequels.
1: (laughs) The Force Force Awakens,
0: (laughs) The Last Jedi, and The Rise of Skywalker. (laughs) Oh, man. This is
1: so sad.
0: That's really funny.
1: Rise of Skywalker. And that's seven, eight, and nine.
0: You got it. When you get to the fact that Luke tosses the lightsaber away, let's start there.
1: Yes, because I think that is the pivotal moment that Lets you know this is not what how you thought it was going to be at the end of Force Awakens. This is not going to be some grand gesture that is lovingly received in the beginning of a new hero's path with Luke. You know, Luke just
0: tosses it over his shoulder, right? And when I saw, you know, I, I at first I was just like in the theater, I was taken aback by that flippant gesture Mm -hmm, seemingly mm -hmm. flippant gesture and I I went back I saw this movie I think three times in the theater because I it it just there was it was so dense there's so much in it that I needed to keep watching it um and I came to realize that Luke throwing away the lightsaber is actually a completely normal thing for him to do Hmm, because he does it in the return of the Jedi in the fight with Darth Vader Luke throws his lightsaber away saying, I will not fight you father.
1: That's right. That's right. right.
0: So Luke has thrown his lightsaber away before. And if the, the direction from the, you know, the director to Mark Hamill had been toss your lightsaber away the way you do in the return of the Jedi, I guarantee you, every big fan would have recognized that motion Mm, and it would mm -hmm. not have been as big a deal. I mean, the flipping it over the shoulder it just felt so like, oh, you're you're just chucking that lightsaber away, you don't care about anything or, or whatever. And it and it does, it, it still rubs me wrong. And I love this movie, and that part just ugh. but if he had if he had tossed it away kind of the way mm. he does in Return of the Jedi, I think it would have resonated in a bit of a different sense.
1: I see that. And I but I and I see the involvement of Luke as a character to be rejection of those grand gestures. He is when we meet him on this island. A failed man in a lot of ways. He is coming there to die, as he says. Um, I will never train another generation of Jedi. I came to this island to die, and it's time for the Jedi to end. Right. That's the important part of that line. So the the very flippant over the shoulder toss, I think, is indicative of that of him just saying, "I reject all of this. I'm not going to make this solemn. I'm not going to make this." You know, I'm not going to repeat parts of my past. It's just get it out of the way.
0: And and so and in that moment, I think as much as I don't like the flippant lightsaber throw, I do think it's necessary for the story because it shows us that Luke has probably gone a little too far because we know that he cuts himself Mm. off from the Force completely, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so over the course of the movie. Ray, who has this idealism about the Jedi, this uh, and he even calls it, you know, um, he, he talks about it being romanticized. Luke does. Yes. And she's got this this idea of, of what a Jedi is supposed to be. And Luke has completely moved to a, um, a rejectionist model. And over the course of the movie, they move towards each other a little bit. Right. Mm-hmm. Luke ends mm-hmm. up not completely rejecting because he can't he can't bring himself to to light the tree on fire. Yes, even though then Yoda does. Even (laughs) then, yeah. Whoops, Uh, it's just a bunch of old books. It's okay, Um, and they're not there anyway. Page
1: turners, Uh, they are not. Page turners,
0: they are not. (laughs) Uh, They're not. They're not the tree because because Ray took them. (laughs) But uh, um, what was I saying? And then so so Luke. Luke moves a little bit back towards the fact that that he and he ends up not cutting himself off from the force because he does that crazy, crazy force projection thing oh, that ends up yeah. killing him. Right. That's a, that's a, an intense <laughs> use of the force. Mm-hmm. And then Ray recognizes that it's not just lifting rocks that the that you that the being a jedi isn't just about lifting rocks the force isn't just about lifting rocks even though the joke at the end is that she lifts a bunch of rocks um near near the very end of the oh, movie i didn't think <laughs> about that i love that um but she lifts rocks in order to free her friends you know so it's not just about the rocks it's about more than the rocks
1: and also luke's just going to walk out with a laser sword and face down the whole first order uh yeah, that sure. is actually also what happens. Yeah. Oh, there's so many parallels. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Terry and I are both really intrigued by Luke's critique of the Jedi, especially the line that we used as our quote from nerd canon today. I'll say, and 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 this is in the this scene. I absolutely love this scene of the movie. It's one of my favorite scenes in the in the movie. It's where Luke is giving Ray one of her lessons. Right, he does that funny thing where he he swats her with the, the mm-hmm. switch. I oh can feel the gosh. force. Right,
1: <laughs> he's like tickling her nose. Yeah,
0: or t- I think he her tickling, hand, but yeah. Tickle, yeah. tickles her hand. Yeah, uh, tickles. tickles her hand. I can feel it. <laughs> I can feel it.
1: Um, way to go, Daisy Ridley. That is then, well played.
0: Yeah, but then then he he tells her to breathe, just breathe, reach out with your feelings. What do you see? And the, Daisy Ridley's performance in this scene is absolutely beautiful. The way that she Says balance energy, and then she says a force. The way she says that, you can you can tell that she's connecting in mm-hmm. that moment to all of the life that is on the island. Um, you know the little the little uh, pork the pork baby life, and death oh dead porks
1: death and decay that feeds new life the yeah, this, okay
0: the cycle the balance. And and Luke says, and inside you, inside me the same force. And that's when Luke says
1: the force does not belong to the Jedi. To say that if the Jedi die, the light dies is vanity.
0: Yeah. And and so he basically says, You the force is all around you. The the this is the living force. It is the thing that as Obi-Wan says in In A New Hope that you know um binds the galaxy together.
1: I appreciate that when when ray is, is laying this all out she kind of comes to the conclusion that we are just presented with in the beginning in the in the original trilogy we are just told that there is a force and it's it's a matter i think of being um shown and not told we are told about the force in the original trilogy and we we discover it with them but this it, almost like the the way she finally says a force you get oh that's why it's called that You almost Mm -hmm. hear that name so often, it's almost become a joke, but realizing that as she works her way towards it by feeling, she names it. I kind of felt a little bit like that's how we talk about like God and love when we say them so often, but feeling your way into saying, oh, that's why we call it that. It is a force. It is balance. It is energy. It is connecting things all around.
0: And it's the connective nature of the force that's so important. Mm -hmm. And the fact that Luke has cut himself off from that, shows that he has gone a little too far in in his desire to just uh, to, just to end the Jedi Order in such a way that he himself has cut himself off from life
1: his whole point is that the force exists outside of the Jedi order and the Jedi order, as we learn, I think in lesson two, he says that the Jedi are romanticized deified, but if you strip away the myth and look at their deeds, the legacy of the Jedi is failure, hypocrisy, hubris. So he wants to end the Jedi order because of the failures of it, which is also in and of itself kind of hubristic thinking that he can end them Mm. because he's the only one when in fact, you know, as we learn, like, hope will continue and, and other forces will rise. I, I don't know. I just see there's a hypocrisy there in his very self of, I'm going to lock myself away on this Island and end it all. It's not ended. You can't end it.
0: Right. Because the force lives on whether or not the Jedi exists. Exactly. And even folks that, that can't use the force to lift rocks, the force is still inside them too, because it connects all living things within the star Wars you know, um, the metaphysics of Star Wars.
1: And I think we see that in the kind of parallel, the additional plots in this film, which we're not specifically focusing on, but all of Holdo's speeches about being the last, the last of the resistance, um, as long as there's a spark, they will survive. And then the children on Cantabite at the very end being the spark of hope all of that is saying that even if this particular institution known as the Jedi Order could be ended by Luke, by burning some books, or by hanging out on an island and throwing away a a lightsaber, that hope, force, light, all of that will not die. It will persevere in the resistance, in this spark of hope that is within those children who are downtrodden and enslaved on Canto It exists regardless of what they do. They can help shepherd it in. They can help Um, and be inspired by it but it's going to continue on no matter what
0: when we take that idea and we transfer it from star wars to the church we can recognize all of those parallels that we were hinting at earlier where while in in our world right now the institutional church, that is the the brick and mortar church of you know of, especially the global north and the mm-hmm. Western world, is shrinking, and has been shrinking for a while now. And we'll we'll often talk about, and we've we've even, and I think in our Moana Moana mm-hmm. episode in season two we talked about, about the end of Christendom, um, the idea that the church for most of its existence has been intimately linked to the empires of the world, especially Mm -hmm. the European empires of the world. And the church had a place of primacy within those empires. And in, and until the mid 20th century, the church and, and the various empires of the Western world have been uh, inextricably linked. That's why, especially in our state of Connecticut, there, the the building closest to the center of every town in Connecticut is a congregational church.
1: Mm-hmm. It's literally in the shape of our state and the towns that exist as a result of churches being at the seat in the middle.
0: And one of the pieces, one of the reasons for angst in our churches these days has to do with the loss of the power that goes along with being intimately tied in with the power structure of the day in with business, with politics, with other things.
1: Well, so let's look at then our scripture quotation, which you, you, the one who found this one. So tell us a little bit more about why we have gone to the gospel of John today.
0: Well, it's always my, uh, it's always my go-to John's gospel. Well, Uh, sure. this, (laughs) This particular passage comes near the end of Jesus's conversation with the woman at the well. Uh, in Samaria. uh, And they've, they've had their long conversation about uh, him getting a drink of water from her and uh, then offering her living water that gushes up uh, to eternal life. And she recognizing that there's something different and special about this, this Jesus. And, uh, and, and she says, um, she starts asking him questions. Uh, The kind of hot button question of the day had to do with where is it where where should we be worshiping, where where is the right place to worship on this mountain, or or in Jerusalem? The mountain she's talking about is Mount Gerizim in Samaria, and Jesus sidesteps her question because uh, she says our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place you, the Jewish people, say the place where you should worship uh, is in Jerusalem, and and Jesus says, oh, wait a second. The hour is coming when you will worship the father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And then then our quotation is, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. For the father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The, the identifying as God is spirit links back to the chapter right before this, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, who is a member of the council. Uh, and Jesus says, the wind blows where it chooses and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. The words spirit and wind are the same word. Uh, so, so Jesus is actually doing a bit of a double entendre. In that moment, Say, talking about the wind, that we need to be on the lookout for how God is moving, wherever we find ourselves, not just in the brick and mortar church, not just where the church has said this is where you will find God, uh, but that the that true worship of God is not tied to one place or one set of doctrines or dogmas, but has to do more with the spirit of God connecting all things to one another.
1: Well, and I think it's difficult because if people have connected with God and had meaningful experiences in a particular way through a certain set of type of worship, through a certain building or place, that's meaningful. And it's easy to then equate God with only with that place rather than that that place or that time or that way of worshiping being part of this larger way of accessing God. And so I see this very much in the last Jedi with, um, the Jedi order being a particular expression of the force and that being extremely meaningful to so many people in the galaxy. Um, and when it changes, when it falls, that can be, that can seem like the, the force itself is going to die. And, um, I have, I have particular experience with this, of the church I served recently. People had been worshiping in this parish for generations. This was, and some of these folks had never been anywhere else. That was all there was for them. So when the pandemic hit needing to be even 10 feet on the other side of the wall and trying to worship God in a new way was, was shocking and difficult because that's all the experiences they've had. So I find myself lucky that I've been able to experience God view God from even my own limited perspective in a number of ways in the woods or in my home or at a church or in different places through worship, through singing, through prayer, through silence in a number of ways that have given me luckily this idea that, you know, we don't, it doesn't matter the, the particular way that we worship, although that is meaningful. Um, if the, particular parish dies or changes, it does not mean that God dies or changes. And yet I also understand how difficult that can be if this is the only way we've been presented with it for so long.
0: I think that's an important uh, viewpoint to hold on to, that as we shift our focus to the mission of God being outside of the walls of the church also recognizing that the mission of God is also still inside the walls of the church.
1: Mm-hmm. Walking that line. Yeah. That,
0: that it's and it's that that what we're doing here when we open the doors of the church is we are making porous the 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 flow between mm-hmm. between inside the church and outside the church. That we're not rejecting the church like Luke rejects the Jedi, but we are also not siloing ourselves off in our buildings and saying this is the only way that, that worshiping God happens or that we can express our belief in God.
1: Part of my experience that I haven't, I don't think I've talked about on the podcast and this isn't, this is, was a very defining part of my life, but as I get older and have different, more life experiences becomes maybe a smaller piece of the pie. But for two years, I lived in intentional Episcopal community and we were not, You know, was we were living in New Haven. It was me and ten other young adults, and the second year was seven of us, all in one house with one bathroom. The second year, I might add, that was that was challenging. Um, But we were in our own early twenties, slightly naive way, trying to live out our Christian mission to be reconcilers, to be lovers in the world of God and of God's people every day of the week, not just Sundays. From you know, 9 to 10 a.m. or whatever, but every day of worshiping on a regular pattern together, living together, sharing some things in common. That's one of the beauties of programs like Episcopal Service Corps, Jesuit Volunteer Corps is it's teaching. It's It provides a a vehicle for folks like me who after college were a little lost um, to express our desire to, to be church every day of the week not just in a building, but out in our community. And all the all of us worked in like local nonprofits or schools or shelters or other places trying to marry our work life, our spiritual life, our relationships, our friendships, all of that together, weaving it into a, a more cohesive whole. And um, it was an cr- incredibly formative experience. And I see that in the rise of other intentional communities, a lot, many of which are way more permanent than one or two years living with other people. It's, it's imp- not to say that those structures aren't important and haven't served the mission of God in very important ways. It's just that in a lot of ways, they're not sustainable in this place we are now, and they're not needed necessarily in the future to continue being God's people in the world
0: and that's the i think that's the the kernel here that's really really important and it's what links us to the last jedi is that god is bigger than the church that god that the church over the last 2000 years has done some wonderful things and some horrible things you can basically you could replace words in luke's quotation right <laughs> this is and this is the lesson God does not belong to the church to say that if the church dies, God dies is vanity. Mm-hmm. It's a one for one. It really is a one for one.
1: Yeah. Parallel, yeah. Uh,
0: which is why when I heard Luke say it, I was in, Whoa, <laughs> I mean the, the vanity it is, it's, it's it is vanity. It's, it's hubris, hubris. Uh, to, to think that, um, to think that somehow if the church that I serve went away, God would die. Mm-hmm. That's just now if the church I served went away then there would be a lot of people who would be incredibly sad and would have to figure out another way of um being a community of faith and which is why I hope the place that I'm serving doesn't go that way um uh, but at the same time we're also called I think to discern what those new ways of being communities of faith That look both like where we've been in the past, but also what we're looking towards in the future and trying to be that in between of where Ray and Luke are at the beginning of the movie, because what happens near the end of the movie, because remember Ray thinks that the force is all about lifting rocks, Uh, (laughs) you know, um, and at the end, and but then she learns that it's about this, it's this binding energy that, that connects all living things in that beautiful lesson. And at the end of the film, when... Um, she, she, you know, leaves the millennium Falcon and she goes, she goes down, uh, there on, um, crate. She knows that Finn and Poe and the rest of the the handful of people are behind this rocks and they can't get out because the Fox creatures were able to get to, uh, to get out, but they can't. And what does she do? She lifts a whole bunch of rocks, but the point of her lifting rocks was not just to lift rocks. It was to free the people who were trapped inside that tunnel. And then the the first thing that happens after that is that Finn comes up and hugs her in a in this huge embrace
1: mm-hmm. of
0: this, this incredibly tight embrace of friendship. And we see that what the reason that Ray used the force there was to renew the relationships, the connections that she had, and the rocks were just in the way.
1: And I, I see this as a parallel very much to church and to worship and to God. So if worshiping God is, or doing, doing church, the way we've known it Sunday morning, 10 AM, right to in the building is lifting the rocks. It's not an end in and of itself. And that's that's difficult for me to remember. Sometimes I'm a huge church nerd. I went to, (laughs) I went to seminary, but I call it Episcopal finishing school. in A lot of ways we learned how to bow and curtsy properly, how Mm -hmm. to wear the right shoes, how to lead a really tight, put together, clear worship service, but that's not the end in and of itself. And, and I think especially among church nerds of which you and I certainly are, it can be easy to forget that, That's not the whole point. It has to always point to relationships, to God, to renewing our, our, you know, the things that connect all of us. And I think when church has been for a long time, a box to check or a societal expectation where you, that's just where you went, where you had to go, either your mom was dragging you or that's where everyone else was on Sunday morning and everything else was closed. I hear people Harkening back to those days, like, wasn't it great when we had literally nothing else to do on Sunday morning? So we all had to go to church and the pews <laughs> were packed. Go. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> well, no, maybe, maybe it's good that it's a choice now. And that when we do choose to worship in whatever way, but maybe in this traditional way, that it has to point always to something greater. Um, it is not, God does not belong to the church, but the church is God's tool working in the world.
0: While Ray, right before Ray lifts the rocks, Luke is having his confrontation with Kylo Ren. And Luke says, I will not be the last Jedi. And then it cuts right to Ray lifting the rocks and everybody coming out. So we know that over the course of the movie, Luke has come back a little bit from cutting himself off from the Force, from that full rejection, and recognizes that even though he's rejected the Jedi, he has not rejected the Force, and the Force has certainly not rejected him.
1: This season on The Book Club, we're going to be reading our way through Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. So for those of you who oh, don't... Wait,
0: wait, Carrie, wait, what? wait, wait, wait. What, wait. what about, what? didn't we stop? But didn't, we, didn't the book we just read, wasn't it number three? What's
1: going on? Oh, we decided that four, five, and six are really boring. No, we decided <laughs> in the interests of not spending seven seasons of this beautiful podcast, which I didn't think we'd get that far, um, on Harry Potter, that we would do skip ahead to the end. And in the meantime, we covered books four, five, and six in our special mini season season three and three quarters see what we did there um so for our conversations our takes on those fabulous books check out season three and three quarters but now for season four of the podcast we are going to be doing deathly hallows and who knows what the book club will hold in the future we're open for suggestions in the meantime here's a quick recap of chapters one through five of deathly hallows chapter one the dark lord ascending The final installment of Harry Potter opens at Malfoy Manor, where Lord Voldemort is holding court with his Death Eaters. Severus Snape, fresh off his stint of albicide, is sitting literally at Voldemort's right hand. The Dark Lord is ready for another attempt on Harry Potter's life, and Snape gives him the deets. The Malfoys, including a terrified Draco, are there, debased in their own home. Voldemort takes Lucius's wand. The Ministry is nearly ready to fall, and the Hogwarts Muggle Studies teacher becomes Nagini's dinner.
0: Chapter two in memoriam. Harry Potter's room is clean for the first time ever, but that's because he is getting ready to leave Number Four Privet Drive and, indeed, his whole life behind for good. Harry reads two newspaper articles about Dumbledore. The first is a glowing eulogy from an old friend. The second is a scathing interview with Rita Skeeter, whose rushed and salacious biography of the late headmaster is about to drop. Harry regrets never asking Dumbledore anything about himself. Harry thought he knew the man, but that's just not true.
1: Chapter three, the Dursleys departing. The Order of the Phoenix arranges for the Dursleys to go into protective custody, something Uncle Vernon only agrees to after much waffling, after Dudley demands it. As he leaves, Dudley tells Harry he loves him, which is the Dursley's translation of, I don't think you're a waste of space.
0: And yeah, now that guy is on, uh, is on uh, the Queen's Gambit. Dude,
1: he's so good! <laughs>
0: yeah, he's really good. He's really good. Uh, chapter four, The Seven Potters. 13 people show up to escort Harry to safety and six of them turn into Harry via Polyjuice Potion as a diversionary tactic. Needless to say, Harry hates the plan because it puts his friends in danger. And in danger they are because of Snape's intel. As they begin to fly off, dozens of Death Eaters attack. Harry is with Hagrid on Sirius' motorbike. For some reason, a killing curse kills Hedwig. The firebolt is gone. Harry shoots defensive magic again and again at the Death Eaters. Then Voldemort appears and attempts to kill Harry but Harry's wand again saves him somehow.
1: Chapter five, Fallen Warrior. Harry and Hagrid make it back to the burrow, but something is terribly wrong. They weren't supposed to be the first ones back. Tension fills the air as the travelers begin appearing. First Lupin and George, who has lost an ear to a curse from Snape. Everyone else returns except for Mundungus Fletcher, who's scarpered at the first sight of Voldemort, and Mad-Eye, who was killed. The weight and finality of death settles over the burrow. Then Harry's scar burns and he sees Voldemort confronting Ollivander about why Lucius's wand did not work. I think if we needed any indication that we are not in the cheerful earlier books, the opening quotations on this for this final volume uh, speak loads. I don't remember. Well, I know how you got this book, Adam. You got it early because your mother. No, 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 no. That was number four.
0: That oh. was number four. The bookstore. Right, well. My mom's bookstore was already closed by this point. Unfortunately. Oh, never mind.
1: Okay. Well, I remember cracking open this book finally and seeing the opening dedication in the lightning bolt shape, and then the quote from Aeschylus and William. Yeah, I didn't, Penn. Know, I
0: didn't even notice that there were there was an epigraph in this book. What? I didn't know that there was an epigraph in the book. I just skipped to the first chapter.
1: I devoured this thing. I'm holding it up for Adam to see. This is like, I took out, no, and this is like, you (laughs) were, I had so many post-it notes in this book and I took out a bunch because they weren't actually as, as funny or interesting as I thought they were. I devoured this thing. And from the opening page, realizing that this, this is a momentous tone shift especially I apologize to our, in our listeners who might be going from book three to book seven. This is a vastly different story. This is darker. It is more serious. It is, it is life and death. And we get that from those opening quotations from the epigraph, from uh, the dedication and from that sort of interior, the dust jacket page. And before even the plot begins and we have that first chapter, the dark Lord ascending, I just, I still get shivers remembering what it was like to read this the first time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, starting, it's not the first book to start with Voldemort because mm-hmm. Book Four does as well.
1: Although, yeah, this is the only one that starts with Voldemort besides Four, and the the contrast is so different, mm-hmm. right? Like going from him as a little stupid little baby in a chair yeah
0: that weird baby thing with no ears surrounding him yeah Yeah. so now
1: he's at the seat of power with nagini curled up around him
0: we we get that tone set right there with voldemort uh with the way he's talking about moguls and wizards we've talked before about how that's a veil for the various ways that our society um splits people based on, um, either race or class or sex that in this book, that in these books, the, the split has to do with whether or not you're magical. The reason that he has captured the muggle studies teacher is because what charity Burbage teaches is anathema to Mm -hmm. Voldemort, you know, professor Burbage taught the children of witches and wizards all about muggles. How they are not so different from us. That for for Voldemort, the fact that moguls and wizards aren't really all that different is the worst heresy that he could imagine somebody saying out loud. When we recognize that people are not so different from us, even if our society has taught us they are, we can start healing old wounds.
1: Well, what's what's terrifying about this chapter is seeing how pervasive this ideology is among the Death Eaters, how completely they believe it. There's a a wonderful, I mean, terrifying moment in the movie where after Voldemort says, you know, would have us mate with them. Everyone kind of goes like, oh, and like Bellatrix Lestrange, like literally like sticks her tongue out and realizing that these are the people who are in this like shadow government about to take over the ministry, they're sitting at the seats of power and this they're creating like a new, a new world order, essentially based in, on this perversion of blood purity. And it's, it's horrifying to see them so taken in by this ideology that puts them above all else still is willing to use, um, you know people of of different blood statuses like the werewolves or like giants um but for their own purposes and completely twist twist all of it for their own benefit to support this sociopath of Voldemort and that they have everything within their grasp they're about to do it essentially they're on the precipice of success that's why the, the chapter is called the dark lord ascending he's coming up into his power into his his throne as it were
0: and in just a few chapters they're going to they're, they're going to do it there. They are. Yeah. The ministry does fall. And, and next, next episode, we'll talk about the ministry falling. Right. Um, so, so let's move on. Now we, we have, we, we have, we, we start with Voldemort. We can, then we can get the contrasts over the course of the book, but we jump to Harry and chapter two really is an info dump.
1: As about, always, as always
0: about, you know, bright what's going green on eyes,
1: untidy yeah. <laughs> black hair, lightning shaped scar <laughs> in case you forget.
0: A newspaper so we can read some articles because, again, the book is almost completely from Harry's perspective. So yes. we, we need we need something about the world. The thing for chapter two that I really do think I, we should just talk about for just a second mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. Harry grieving Dumbledore regretting if I if only I had asked him, if only I knew him better. And isn't that one of the great griefs griefs that we have when we lose somebody? If if only I had been able to ask them this, if only we'd had that conversation. Um, And in the end, even if we knew somebody intimately and we really thought we knew them as well as we possibly could when they die, I guarantee you, you're still going to say that, but it is, it is so sad because there are several places in the books where Harry chooses not to confide in Dumbledore and where Dumbledore chooses not to share things with Harry for various reasons. So their 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 relationship is one where Harry doesn't necessarily know how to react to somebody caring for him in the way that Dumbledore cares for him. And Dumbledore doesn't really know how to care for Harry because of what he's setting him up to do.
1: Right. He was unprepared to love him. And I think we have talked before in the podcast about grief being not just grief for what has passed, but for the future that you will not have the conversations that won't have. And I wonder if almost in, in death, we, I don't know if if Rita would have published these lies slash speculations if Dumbledore was still alive, but that when someone dies is no longer there to defend themselves or to speak up for themselves. Harry discovers all these extra things that he had always he had never even thought about, let alone asked about. And now he's grieving the potential conversations that they could have had later on the book. He'll say, you know, like, I wish we could have gone to Godric's hollow together. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, that loss of a potential relationship,
0: I love that Daedalus Diggle thinks he's flattering Uncle Vernon by commenting on his ability to drive.
1: Is just I've always been great bamboozled detail. by those. Oh, my gosh. I love Uncle Vernon's trust in the establishment so much so that he's like, okay, wizards, I, all, I think you're all crackpots, but Kingsley Shacklebolt looks like he's the...
0: Yeah. Yeah. He looks, he looks like, like he knows he's the most he's reliable <laughs> of the crackpots
1: and like having him be on television behind the prime minister makes Vernon kind of start to trust the slightest bit. He wants to see their CVs. Like, can you imagine Daedalus Diggle's Curriculum vitae. It's like graduated from Hogwarts, nineteen forty-five. Yeah. <laughs> um, did an apprenticeship at the Ministry. Like it's it's not gonna be it's gonna be nonsense to him.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, I, I think the farewell between Harry and Dudley is so touching. Oh,
1: I found I've had the exact. All right, tell me why you think that because I was deeply disturbed by it.
0: Oh, good. I like it when we disagree. I just find Dudley. Dudley saying, I don't think you're a waste of space. As I said, when I wrote the recap, so Carrie had to read the words, but I wrote the recap. Um, I don't think you're a waste of space is as far as he is able to go into saying, you know, I love you. I really think it's way, the way that Dudley, because of his upbringing, because he's lived with Harry all these years and, and his parents have never modeled for him what it would be like to care for another sibling, to care for another child. Um, has left Dudley very confused of what being a brother would look like. And ever since book five, when they when, when they both get accosted by the death, uh, by the... Um, um,
1: dementors. Dementors,
0: by the Dementors, <sighs> there's a softening from Dudley. And at the end, when he's about to leave, when he says, I don't think you're a waste of space, first, he's standing up to his father. Mm. And second he it's it's like there's so much more I could say but I don't have the language I don't know how to say the other things that I could say that's so it's a it's a poignant farewell I think so why do you think it's it's awful
1: no I I, I so I I do agree with all that what I'm what I was really struck by was actually slightly early in the chapter when they're about to leave and Dudley says why isn't he coming with us pointing to Harry mm-hmm. and it just never occurred to Dudley that Harry wouldn't come with them because for him, his family is him, his mother, father, and his cousin who he's been so he's, he's been, I I can only say like, he's been ignorant in the face of the injustices that have been done to Harry. He just, it's just the way it's always been. Dudley never really questioned that. That's just the way, the way things were in his family that, and of course, Harry would come with them because it's their family. He doesn't realize like, of course, Harry doesn't want to come with them. Of course, they don't want him to come with them. Um, It just never, never occurs to him until that moment. And even later on the page, he starts to kind of struggle as Dudley was struggling with concepts too difficult to put in words. And then he asks, where is he going to go? And I think that's maybe part of that softening process. He's not coming with us, Mm -hmm. but I can't imagine where else he would go because he's never been anywhere else except from Hogwarts. Um, And that's where maybe the, the paves the way for that farewell so I, I do find it poignant i find it sad
0: um okay chapter four i just need to sound off we can sound off yeah, together right. so, okay i'm just gonna potters go. yeah let me just these are the notes i took i'm so just gonna read timer. you my notes <laughs> okay. i to read you my notes there's only a couple the first note is why is mundungus part of this plan exclamation mark exclamation mark exclamation mark cool yeah <laughs> number two the trace makes no sense number three I don't buy Harry not riding a broom. He's too good a flyer for that not to be an advantage. Number, I don't care if they think, well, they'll recognize him if he's on a broom. No, he's one of the best flyers ever. So come on. Number four, I hate the seven potters plan. <laughs> number five, why did he not just let Hedwig fly to the burrow? <sighs> and number six, and this one's bolded. The plan is Harry's worst nightmare. Friends in danger. And he is without any agency at all.
1: I literally, I wrote Harry's literal worst nightmare, completely without agency at the <laughs> mercy of another person while his friends are putting themselves in danger. There you
0: go. So we yes. get to the same place with some weirdly
1: intrusive polyjuice potion stuff along the way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so I, yes, it's,
1: it's a, it's a hard chapter to read because it's so you're there with Harry in the sidecar. I love that image of Ron smirking down at him. Like he's like a child in a bumper car. Um, Just how, especially when you're 16, turning 17, how infantilizing that must feel. And on his own, you know, on a personal note, his own worst nightmare of, of all these people putting themselves in danger for him, literally taking his shoes Stepping into his shoes, taking his place. There taking we go. Taking his
0: face. I don't know. Yeah. Taking his yeah. face. <laughs> taking his face, and that leads us right into chapter five because then we get all of this misplaced guilt that Harry has. You know, he's yeah, which always, we have, we have talked oh, about at oh length so much. We've talked about this, and it just is still there. That Harry, it's always Harry's fault if anyone dies he had consented to the plan. He'd given them his hair. It says, you know, the text says a mixture of fear and guilt gripped Harry at the sight of their expressions. If any of the others had died, it was his fault, all his fault. He had consented to the plan, given them his hair. And so he, why doesn't he understand that it's the bad guy's fault. <clears throat> if they kill somebody, it is not his fault.
1: Gryffindor. He, he's
0: always, Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's always his fault. Um, but then for some reason he's able to let other people off the hook it's Harry's fault if anyone dies but if they let something slip about the plan then quote I know they didn't mean mm-hmm. to do it mm-hmm. it's not their fault what the heck
1: and he is still very much being driven by his emotions as illogical as they would seem as he you know someone has already died for him someone has already lost an ear for him and he wants to leave so it's up to mr weasley to say it would make our efforts tonight seem rather pointless if you left like the whole point was to get you here safely please don't just go like stay and actually make this all be worth it um it's but it's his nature to want to like be a lone wolf and get out of the you know get himself out of the way so that other people are not in danger And yet they constantly in the book, the people around him say, we want to be in relationship with you. We want to help you. We want to be along here with you. And we're going to do this on our own. It becomes an in-joke almost with Ron and Hermione being like, mate, come on. (laughs) We've been over this before. Um, And this is just all that struggle writ large.
0: All right. Well, next time on the podcast, we'll be reading Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, chapters six through nine. That's the ghoul in pajamas, the will of Albus Dumbledore, the wedding and a place to hide. Happy reading.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast for nerdy Christians. You can find us at nerdychristians.com or on social media, facebook.com slash nerdychristians and on Twitter at nerdychristians, where I occasionally tweet bad memes. You can find Adam on Twitter at RevAdamThomas or on his website, adamthomas.net. Check out his latest fantasy novel. I'm going to say it in this excited voice. It's called Vampire Mist, Ballad of the B-Team, book one. I'm a character in it. That's right. The B-Team, finally getting their own book as deserved. And as always, you can find both of us right here on the next episode of the Podcast for Nerdy Christians, where faith meets fandom.
0: And now, as the world changes and life shifts faster than we can keep up with, remember that the light perseveres, unbridled, unbounded, connecting everything, balancing everything. God's love perseveres, shining in us no matter what else happens. Remember that when you have hope, you have everything you need. Amen.